welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael and I'm your host. Today's show, today's show is about hunting bans. Some of you might know that uh, there's other states right now that are dealing with these issues such as Oregon and Colorado. And we've dealt with them in the past in Arizona too. So in preparation for future issues like these, you know, we want to get the word out about our model of conservation and to maybe debunk some of the myths around hunting large predators. If you have strong feelings about hunting large predators, let's say you don't like it, I would ask you to please listen to the show with an open mind because I promise there's more to it than you might realize. It definitely goes beyond feelings, goes beyond emotions, it goes beyond knee-jerk reactions. You know, there's there's a reason that we have ample wild, healthy places in our country and robust wildlife populations, and that is because of the North American model of wildlife conservation. And we hold that up for a reason, and you're going to find out why in this show. So please listen, and uh, it is an interesting show. We're talking with John Stallone. John's got a lot of lot of interesting things to say on the topic. Uh, John coming is coming to us from Howl, an organization, a hunting advocacy organization, as well as his own podcast here in Arizona, Days in the Wild. The podcast has been around as long as I've been in the state. I don't know how long, how old it is, but it is a very good and well-established podcast. So please, please check that out as well. Before we get into that show, I have two things to tell you about. One is since the last time we spoke, we held our annual camo at the Capitol event. And oh my gosh, I just couldn't be more proud of that event. We Ourselves, Arizona Wildlife Federation, with several of our friends and affiliates held held a presence down at our capital. We served a variety of wild game dishes to our legislators. We talked about public lands, our access. We talked about healthy wildlife populations and healthy habitat. Um, and uh, you know, we, we were visited by nearly a quarter of our entire legislature. So I am very proud to say that that was an absolute success and it's probably one of my favorite events every year, uh, advocacy events anyway. And yeah, I would encourage you next year to come down and pay us a visit. Uh, it just, uh, it feels good to get out there and advocate for our wild places and our wildlife. Then from the Arizona Trail Association. The Arizona Trail Association is a longtime friend of Arizona Wildlife Federation. And now I'm very proud to say they're an affiliate of ours as well. I, uh, you know, Long distance trails are very near and dear to me. I've been fortunate in my life to be able to do two very long hikes, uh, one on the Appalachian Trail and the other on the Continental Divide Trail. Both of those trips will provide a, a lifetime of memories for me. I mean, any anytime you get the opportunity to backpack across our, our wildernesses and go for, for six months, you know, it's, boy, I don't know what to say. Um, it's too much to encompass into a, a short thought. So needless to say, I am a fan of long trails. And these are the folks that maintain our Arizona Trail and advocate for it. And uh, the ability to walk or hike across our diverse and beautiful state is something uh, it's 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 something to cherish and something to defend jealously. So I would recommend that you get out there and you attend this annual meeting they're holding on February 10th. Uh, That is going to be in Peoria at the Rio Vista Recreation Center. Uh, Let's see, it's a $40 registration, but that's gonna get you catered lunch, beverages, coffee, breakfast snacks. You're also gonna receive a raffle ticket to win a variety of outdoor prizes, outdoor gear, um, and also a complimentary one-year membership to the Arizona Trail Association. Um, This is a great organization and great people, and I promise you'll have a great time if you attend this meeting. 
So get out there and support those guys. They, uh, they're providing a valuable resource for us in Arizona. And that's all I got for you. Listen to the show with John. Again, I ask that, that you listen with an open mind. And, um, you know, if, if nothing else, I, I hope you come away from the show with, with a, at least a, a new or a different perspective of, of predator hunting. Yeah, yeah, I promise it'll be interesting regardless. And I will see you after the show. For the listeners, this one is a little bit convoluted. Um, I'm here with uh, John Stallone, and <laughs> this is already awkward. Um, this is going to run on both of our pa- uh, podcasts. Uh, I have the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast, and I'll let John tell you about his. So I guess we're, we're both hosts. We're both guests here. Uh, and since I'm already talking, I'll go ahead and do a quick intro for myself and my org, and then I'll uh, uh, pass it over to John. Um, so my name is Michael Cravens. I'm the advocacy and conservation director for the Arizona Wildlife Federation. And, you know, the Arizona Wildlife Federation, I like to brag, is 100 years old, making it the oldest conservation organization in the state. We work while our our roots are in sporting. We were formed back in 1923. Uh, Aldo Leopold actually called our first meeting into order. But we were formed to create the first commission for wildlife management in Arizona to take it out of the hands of the legislature and put it into a science-based commission, which I'm happy to say is still the case today. But as far as our work goes, we work on a lot of things. We work on education. We work on boots on the ground, volunteer habitat improvements um, and restorations. And we work in advocacy, and that's my primary role. You know, I'm I'm down at the Capitol a lot. I, I like to tell folks that I think we're the only conservation organization in the state that truly has our finger on the pulse of the legislature. So we're always tracking good bills, bad bills, lifting them up, stomping them down, whatever's necessary, uh, working for our wildlife, our public lands, our access to those public lands, and our heritage of hunting and angling. And that's what we're talking about here today that we'll get more into, but our potential hunting bans in the state of Arizona. So you will be able to find this show on my uh podcast, the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast, and I'm going to pass it on over to John now. So, yes, I'm John Stallone, Vice President of Howlful Wildlife, and uh, I'm going to be speaking today with Michael Cravens from the Arizona Wildlife Federation, and uh, we're going to talk at some of the things that are going on around the country right now, but specifically how that might kind of bleed into what we got going on here in Arizona. There, there. If, if though, for those folks who follow the work that Hal does, you'll already know this. I would say that Washington State is kind of the poster child for having issues with wildlife management and hunting and angling. But also, there, uh, go, go ahead, John. Among, <laughs> Washington, or yeah, Washington, yeah. Oregon, Colorado, right, right now. Colorado yeah. was where I was going next. Right now, Colorado is dealing with with you know, uh, to simplify it, a cat hunting ban, um, or a trophy hunting ban. Um, and there's so much nuance to all of this stuff like trophy hunting. I'm sure we're going to get into that, but you know, we're concerned because, you know, we see these happen. They've happened in the past in Arizona. So we're seeing a lot of activity on this front being that we have had this attempt to ban cat hunting in Arizona. Um, we're, we're concerned about this uh, making the rounds and coming back and being faced with it again. 
Now, the issue here is the, these these campaigns are primarily ran by uh, the Humane Society of the United States, and they have largely failed in the legislature. So the move has gone to a ballot initiative. Now, the reason this is so scary is because an educated public makes good decisions. Um, an uneducated public or a public that has been misled makes very bad decisions. And those decisions um, are not just going to be help, felt by those who enjoy hunting mountain lions or bobcats in Arizona. They're going to be felt by wildlife managers all over. And, and the repercussions of these decisions, taking wildlife management out of the hands of the scientists and the wildlife managers and putting it into a misinformed public, um, you know, the, the long-term effects of that are, are downright scary. So if, you know, and I'm going to say this because, Absolutely. you know, the Arizona Wildlife Federation, again, while we are grounded in sporting, we, we, you know, lift up all outdoor recreation, whether that's, you know, family campers or bird watchers or hikers, as well as hunting and angler hunters and anglers. And we, we really pride ourselves on trying to bring those two groups together. So we do have a little bit wider of an audience um, and can reach some of these other folks. And, and unfortunately, you know, in the sporting community, a lot of times when we're talking about this stuff, we're in echo chambers. We're talking to ourselves, you know, so we need to find and mm -hmm. we'll get into tactics here in a bit, but we need to find a way to reach those other folks. So, John, as I'm talking about this, I'm going to be talking as if I'm talking to everyone and not just the sporting community. Sure. Absolutely. So you said something that uh, kind of resonated with me and educated, an educated public makes, you know, good decisions. Um, the problem is, is whose education. Right. Well, that's the difference between education and propaganda. So right. in, in Arizona, when this came up before and, and when it comes up again, you will probably see billboards with Jaguars and ocelots, um, you know, and to be 100% crystal clear, these are not animals we hunt in Arizona, nor is there any push to hunt these animals, nor is there any real desire to hunt these animals. These are very rare, very endangered animals. And hunters, in general, very much care about healthy ecosystems, healthy wildlife populations. Um, they, they, there's no push to pursue these animals at all. On the converse, bobcats, mountain lions, their populations are doing great. And that includes bears too. Um, they're, they're healthy. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got, well, all right, before, before I get into all this, John, do you want to add anything in here before I'd like jump into the North American model and all of that? Well, I, I just, I, one of the things that I don't know if this is the mm -hmm. right point to interject this or not, but you're talking about bears and lions and bobcats. And I think one of the main things that, is misconstrued by the other side on purpose um, is to lead people to believe that these are all mm -hmm. inedible, um, that we only hunt them for hides and heads, um, that their narrative is that we basically go there, we lop off the head and we leave the rest out there to, right. you know, to waste. Um, even though there's laws in place that would prevent us from doing that, uh, especially with mountain lion and bear, uh, bobcat, I don't, I don't believe you're required to take a bobcat, but um, I don't know any hunters that don't 
take it. So, um, you know, that, that, that's one of the pictures that they're painting. Yep. Um, and that's part of their grandiose or grander, um, narrative that they've been trying to portray the hunter and, uh, and I don't even like to use the word sportsman. Um, I, I like to use the out, word outdoorsman. Okay. How they're trying to portray the outdoorsman, um, f- you know, since, the, I don't know, for the last 50 years or so, you think about Bambi, you think about any of these movies, the hunter is never the hero. He's always the anti-hero or right. the protagonist or the creepy or... You know, um, if you look at like Elmer Fudd or mm-hmm. you're never the hunter is never shown in a positive light. Uh, you know, and if you if you go back 100 years, uh, the hunters were the heroes. Those were the, the providers. Those were the people who, you know, and it so we're not that far removed from that. You know, the human history shows that the hunter for for millennia have been, you know, the, the guy or the girl. And now it's uh, it's not that way that there's all of a sudden there's a shift. So, right. yeah, the most ardent vegan in the world comes from a very long, like hundreds of thousands of years of su- successful hunters or they would not be here. Mm-hmm. But that's an argument that would probably fall short. But to summarize, uh, John, what, what you're saying is, one, um, the misinformation is going to come in the form of misrepresenting endangered species that, and, and make it look like hunters want to pursue these animals. Um, and the fact that this is purely trophy hunting. Um, I can tell you for a fact that cats are delicious. Um, John last year, in fact, last time I probably saw you in person was at Mm -hmm. our annual camo at the Capitol event where we get together. Yeah. All the conservation orgs and we serve up wild game dishes to our state legislators and staff and down at the Capitol. And I served over 50 bobcat tamales, um, to folks that I would say 95% were not hunters. Um, Mm -hmm. and not one person turned their nose up and everyone enjoyed them. Um, cats are really good. And I don't know a hunter that would leave one in the field. Uh, With that, we have wanton waste laws on animals like mountain lions um, that legally prevent folks from leaving that meat in the field. So this is not a trophy hunt. Um, And God, the the trophy term is is so nuanced and and means so many different things that it's... uh, Well, you can't define it. That's the... Yeah. yeah. Um, (laughs) Right. But, you know, I will say that the hunting of mature animals is is a great way to manage wildlife. It, it's taking animals that have already reproduced, passed on their genes into those those populations and taking them out at the end of their, their reproductive lives. So a large, mature male animal is, from a managing perspective, the best animal to remove from a population. But that's a conversation that we could go in and make a whole podcast about. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't want to get too deep into those weeds. But so that that's the misinformation side. That That's the side that, you know, these, I would say, good intended, but really misinformed people are going to try to lead the general public to believe. We know this is not the case. And we need to do a better job of educating the public. Um, and that, that's going to come in a couple forms. Uh I want to talk about hunters policing themselves, but we can, we can save that. 
But from the education piece, I would like to remind folks that 100 years ago, we had no regulation regarding wildlife. Uh, folks could go out, and I'm sorry, the, a lot of the, these laws and things were coming into place at, at 100 years ago. So this is a problem right. we were working on up to 100 years ago. There were no laws and regulation around the take of wildlife in North America. You know, the country was still relatively new, um, and you know, we had uh, abundant wild places and abundant wildlife, and there was a market value for that wildlife. So, you know, market hunters at the time, you know, these just regular Joes trying to, to make a paycheck, not meaning any harm, you know, they, they went out and they capitalized on this resource, whether that be bison or white-tailed deer or whatever. And a lot of our uh, big game species were, were literally point, uh, pushed to the point of, of almost extinction. Um, so thank you to forward thinkers like uh, Pinchot and Roosevelt. Um, we, we formed this, uh, you know, the, these game laws that were, were designed around only taking surplus and encouraging population growth and, and sustainability of all of this wildlife that, that we all valued so much. So fast forward to now. Now we are living in the good old days of wildlife again. Um, mm -hmm. We have populations of bears and, and lions you know, uh, I can say unsubstantially, some of unsubstantiatedly, um, those, those animals are doing better now than they were a hundred years ago. Uh, and it's because of one thing, it's because of this North American model of wildlife conservation that we have. The mass, well, the majority of sportsmen, outdoorsmen don't understand that. So it's, if they don't understand that, how do we expect the non-hunting public Right. The voting public. Right. How do we get to, to them? understand that? I, I would also like to add to the importance that I think the general populace needs to understand. And sometimes I describe this like this. If you take a pie chart, right, and you take a little slice of that pie, that little slice is going to be your general, um, I, and I shouldn't say, I mean, visualize this however, you know, you want it to make sense in your head. Uh, but a smaller section of that pie is going to be your general outdoor recreationists, whether that's bird watchers, hikers, campers, um, folks like that, folks that appreciate wildlife and enjoy the outdoors. But then you take an even tinier slice of that pie, and those are the outdoor recreationists that really dig into conservation, that care, that do the work, that put their money where their mouth is. That's a tiny slice. The rest of that pie is literally made up of hunters and anglers. There is something about having this tangible connection to wildlife, the ability to go out into the field, harvest an animal, bring it home, feed your family with it, that makes you want to put more back into it than the general outdoor recreationists. Mm -hmm. And I know there's exceptions to that rule, so I don't want folks to get mad at me for saying that. But without question, on the whole, that's the case. We have all of this because we have the, you know, sporting community or hunter and angler community that has the connection to these animals and these places and wants to keep them around forever. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that outdoorsmen are participants in conservation versus 
being a preservationist than being a observational, yeah. you know, yeah. observationist. And so when you have a little bit more vested um, stake in, in what you're doing, um, you tend to, you tend to care about it more. You tend to do things that will uh, keep it going for perpetuity, you know, right. right? So you you want to see, you want to see animals succeed. You want to see habitat flourish. You want to see uh, all the all the cogs moving in in the right direction, so that you know somebody in your lineage, somebody down the line, you could pass that pass it to them. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it's very. <laughs> It's very hard for us to. It is hard for us, and and it, it, in the sense that we can't just show a picture like mm-hmm. an anti hunter can of, you know, uh, a dead deer or whatever the case may be, and and spit out a narrative that gets easily consumed by somebody who doesn't know. Yeah. Um it makes it very difficult for us to explain this very nuanced, this very in-depth feeling of wanting to hunt something, but also caring about it deeply that we want to see it flourish. Right. And it's not so much, it's not as linear as like, um, you know, taking care of, animals or something because your livelihood depends on it like you the more animals you have the more money you make or whatever right it's it's different than that it's not like we just we don't want to have more animals just because it means we can hunt more yes that's an awesome byproduct and i'm not sure any yeah, hunter that's a, that's would a lie big misconception to you. yeah yeah any hunter would lie to you if they said that wasn't the case like you know we all want more opportunity we're always bitching about excuse my french about opportunity um but the reality is that we want to see, you know, we enjoy going out there and just like a bird watcher and, and seeing what nature has to, has to provide for us for that day, you know? Right. So it's like having, being, we're not having, but being <clears throat> able to explain that in the way that informa- information is disseminated now you know via social media or whatever everything is like you know so fast like there's no it's hard to have to to pass on that idea to people right and so for me like i think one of the biggest things that we need as a community speaking as the hunting community uh to get that messaging across um, is to have these, have conversations with people. Um, I think a grassroots effort, you know, we're, we're going to have to do what we need to do and, you know, in social media, mass media, mainstream, all that stuff. But I think where the, where the message is going to do the most good is the sportsman's list, sportsman listening to this, the outdoorsman listening to this, educating themselves 
on the North American model of conservation, number one, but also thinking about their own personal experience with hunting and what it means to them, the human side of it, mm-hmm. the meals, the camaraderie, the the heritage, the the time of field, the disconnecting, whatever, all the human uh, intrinsic values that go along with what you do. Yeah. Think about that and package that in a, you know, couple second conversation piece in your head and having that at the ready that when you, uh, when you recognize an opportunity to speak to somebody at the water cooler or in the break room or out on the job site or whatever, and you're having this conversation with somebody who may or may not hunt or fish, they can understand where you're coming from. They can see the different sides of what hunting and fishing and being an outdoorsman means. And if something were to pop up on the ballot, like they're being faced with in Colorado right now, mm-hmm. or potentially, I should say, because it's not technically on the ballot yet, um, you more than likely have created a sympathetic voter yeah. with you. Because now they have an understanding. Now when they see the propaganda, okay, they're going to be skeptical of it. Mm-hmm. When they when they get the one-liners and and they're like, well, you know, I know Mike. Mike, Mike and I had this conversation, you know, and he explained to me this, 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 and that. And, you know, he's a good guy. And um, yeah, I don't I don't think I'm gonna vote that way. I think I'm gonna vote this way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's where the I hate to put it this way, but that's where the war is won, you know. Mm-hmm. See, that's the only way, not the only way, but it is the best way um, that we as a community can, excuse me, I got the hiccups. We as a community can share the truth, share the education, mm-hmm. not the propaganda, because right. the other side's been building a war chest for. Yes. For a very long time, they got a lot of money. So specifically, like in this Colorado thing, they're poised to spend a million dollars a week and Mm -hmm. pump their messaging into, you know, Boulder and Denver and all these places where there may or may not be people that hunt that don't understand what hunting is, but they have, you know, they they want to be they want to be on the right side of stuff. You know, they want to do the right thing. So if I'm telling you that killing mountain lions is the right thing to do and I'm showing you these, you know, kittens and fuzzy creatures and whatever, you're going to, you're going to buy it. You're going to drink the Kool-Aid. You're going to buy into that very easily. Yeah. Um, but that's why it's on us right? Like, to have these conversations, to have these, these moments so that people can get an, a better understanding. Cause even if we had the money that they have, like I said, they have a much easier job. You know, I got a, I actually got a great story that, that goes along with this. So a couple of years ago, um, a hunter posted a picture of a fawn laying next to his 3D target. And the 3D target was laying on its side in the grass. And he just snapped the picture. He thought it was cool. There was a fawn laying next to his 3D target. Well, an anti-hunter got a hold of that p- that picture and posted something to the effect like, "Where, 
where have we uh, where have we gone wrong? This poor uh, fawn thinks that this is his dead mom or yeah, something yeah. something along those lines. But it got like crazy traction on social media. Mm-hmm. But that narrative, it was so easy to believe. But the, the real narrative is the original post from the, the hunter was check out this fawn. He's cool. You know, it was, it's so, it was so cool to see him laying next to, you know, that my 3D target, which I laid down on the ground because I didn't want the bucks to hit it, you know, during the rut or whatever. And later on, the mother came and collected the fawn and they went back in the woods together. Right. Like that was what was what actually happened. And, you know, it was a much longer story that couldn't be said with, you know, if you don't read, if you don't read the whole caption, you're not going to get the whole story. They, all they have to do is put one liner captions on things and they succeed in their mission where we have a much harder time trying to get that messaging across. That's why it's, it's gotta be like this long, this long form dialect between you know, you and somebody who does not know you and the, I say you, the, the sportsman who's sure. listening, um, and, and the non, and the non-hunter, you know, the non-fishing community. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, John, before we, we carry on with what we can do as a community to help curb this stuff, I want, I want to backpedal one more time and just make it clear that there are exceptional, engaged, committed conservationists that are not hunters. And there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. But what I mean by there not being enough are that outdoor recreation sector not being committed the way hunters and anglers are. What I'm referring to there is like back in Missouri, you know, we have a little tiny bit of public land. But boy, if you go out there during rifle deer season, it is an orange army. And those guys are what I'm talking about. Because a lot of those guys, those those grandfathers that are, are taking their grandchildren out and introducing them to this thing and are passing this along. Those folks, you know, they're hardworking people. They don't have Mm -hmm. a lot of time to give a crap about what's going on, you know, conservation-wise around the country or even in their own backyards if they didn't have that reason to care. And we need those people. That is an army of people, a massive Mm -hmm. amount of money getting poured into this. So whether you like hunting or not, that community is paying for conservation and we're lucky to have them. Well, that's the thing too. Like that's the con- part of the conversation you need to have at the water cooler. You need to be able to explain, you know, most, most people don't understand. They wouldn't be able to see, you know, elk. They wouldn't be able to access, uh, that trail or go mountain biking or hiking or whatever, if it wasn't for the efforts of outdoorsmen and, mm-hmm. PR funds and yep. license sales and all these other things that go into these that pay for these. Like we, we, again, you know, not, not all sportsmen and not all outdoorsmen understand that it is, it is a user pay system, but I can guarantee you if only 20% of the outdoorsmen understand that, that way less of the non-hunting public understands that you know i actually had a uh was doing a workout group and i had about 15 i I call them kids they're you know in their 20s Mm -hmm. um 
15 guys that, in, that, in that's this. that's brazen of you to get into a workout with a bunch <laughs> of 20 year olds i don't know if I, i'd have the ego for that man i uh you know we were we were doing this workout <laughs> class and i and i i stopped there we, something came up about me being a bow hunter and um it was that i think it was at the time i still had a tv show or whatever but and they brought it up and i i said you know what i want to ask you guys something and i said Give me a show of hands. How many of you know where the money comes from to pay for conservation, to uh, regulate and um, you know set season dates, the the game and fish? Where, where is where is that money coming? Every one of them raised their hand, and I knew I knew exactly what they were where their brain was going. So I asked the first kid, and he was like, "My taxes." Next person, same answer, taxes, taxes, my taxes. And then I explained to him, like, well, guess what? You guys are wrong. You know, your taxes, your income taxes, your property taxes, they, they don't go unless you're specifically buying, you know, things that are part of the PR system. There is no taxing going towards what you think they it's going towards yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah all these all this stuff is paid for by this 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 and that and they were all floored about it mm -hmm. and so you know it's an uphill battle to get this messaging across and I, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that well one hunters hunters in general um i think we like to keep to ourselves Right. You know, we have most, most hunters have that mentality is you do you, I do me. And I'd say that was before social media. True. I mean, yeah, no, yes and no, but yes, I, I, mm. I think this generation right now, the current last two generations, I think, sure. um, we might've missed it. You and me, but <laughs> I'm still doing it too, man. <laughs> <laughs> we, we might've missed it. You and me a little bit, yeah. but yeah, I do. Listen, uh, there's there's plenty. I, I I speak my mind a lot. I'm I'm not definitely not uh, I'm not one to uh, not share my opinion. Yeah. But um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of that. Like I I don't want to impose my life on you. Right. Type of scenario. Okay. I follow you. Yeah. Okay. And and with that, you know we don't get involved in we don't get involved in stuff yeah you know like i can't I, when i first started uh you know when charles and i first started getting doing half a wildlife i can't tell you how many times we heard well because we were using the word activism mm -hmm. well it's like a dirty word activism is for for the libtards and this and that like you see you heard yeah. all this stupid stuff and you're yeah. like no you you if you care about something you have to be actively yeah, you involved gotta be an advocate. That's, yeah you got to be an advocate right and um you know it's just i kind of forgot where i was going with this but no but my, my whole uh what i was trying to get at was i'm i think that between that mindset and like, for instance, growing up when I, when I took my hunter's ed in New York at nine years old, 
the mindset, we were told to be recluse. Like we were told to be in the shadows. We were like, don't, don't display the deer. Don't talk about hunting. Don't, you know, don't, don't put it in other people's faces. So like that was, that was the thing. And now we're in this age where everything's in your face. Like you can't even go, you know, fart in a corner or whatever without somebody videoing it and Mm -hmm. throwing it up on social media. So everything that we do now is like, you know, when we take a picture of us with a grip and grin or whatever, you putting that up there, there's no, and you could put it really nice. I I encourage you to put a really great description and and caption Mm -hmm. of the whole story and what went behind it and and so on and so forth, because that's going to help. But the the fact of the matter is most people don't look at that. Right. And all they're going to see is you with this dead animal. And they're either going to draw their own conclusions or worse yet, the anti-hunters are going to draw their conclusion for you. Right. And so this mindset of being in, being quiet about it cannot be there any longer. We mm-hmm. have to adapt to the times and the times right now are, everybody knows everything about everybody and it's mostly self-inflicted, but we need to, we need to start showing all the human values, all the good things that hunting and fishing provide. Right. Right. I I agree with you entirely, John. Um, and we've kind of inadvertently gotten into, to this area I wanted to talk about anyway, and that's policing ourselves as hunters. Um, you know, of the things that we can do to help combat this, you know, one of them is being thoughtful about how we portray ourselves. Um, I've got a social media page, you know, Mm -hmm. full of grip and grins, but I've also got lots of meals that I make with my family. I've got the experience out there and I try to be very careful about how I talk about things. And when I am posting those pictures of of a harvested, and I know some people don't like harvest, but I like harvest of a harvested Mm -hmm. animal because it is something that you're going out and getting and bringing home utilize. Right. Um, I'm careful about how I do it. I shot a, a rabbit with my longbow the other day and posted a picture of myself holding that rabbit. If I had turned that rabbit around the other direction, it would have been a completely different picture. Believe me. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a perfect shot. The rabbit didn't feel a thing. I was very proud. Uh, but the, the side of that rabbit I hit was not appropriate to display on, on social media. Um, so I'm always very careful and thoughtful about that. Um, it, it, it irks me when I see pictures uh, displayed of animals with, with blood all over and things like that. Cause that is not, and I think hunters, some of them, I mean, there's good and bad in all groups, right? I mean, they're, they're, of let's be honest. There's some shit bag hunters out there. Oh yeah. Um, and there's some great ones too, but some guys are just like, they get angry. You know, they're like, well, screw that. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Oh, a lot of people um, do actually. Yeah. But That's man, you're shooting yourself common. in the foot. And quite honestly, there's nothing wrong with people being somewhat offended by blood and gore. Most, most folks don't want to see that. And they're not seeing it from your perspective. Like, Oh my God, that was a hell of a shot. You know, that killed that animal quickly. They're seeing it from a completely different perspective and right. that that's fine. And it's also fine for you to be thoughtful in how you portray this thing that we love to do. And quite honestly, if you want to keep it around for your children and their children, you better damn well start being thinking about that because right. it matters. Um, especially in today's day and age. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll add one more story in here that I've, I've probably told a couple of times on this podcast, so I apologize to the listeners, but um, I lived in the most, and this is not to be political, uh, I promise you, I'm just trying to portray a picture here. 
I lived in the most left-leaning neighborhood in the most left city in Arizona. Um, okay. I lived there for, what, six, seven years. Um, more of my my neighbors were vegetarian, vegans, and then were not. Uh, and because I developed friendships with these really good, really thoughtful people, these are the people that would have signed that ballot initiative in a second before they met me. Mm-hmm. I, that sounds like I'm stroking my own ego here, I realize. But, but living there and, and having a relationship with me, I could cut up a bear, you know, under the awning on my front porch and not a person in that neighborhood was going to complain about it. In fact, I would, I would bring Havelina home, hang it up in the tree in the backyard that all the kids mm-hmm. would come over, all the neighborhood kids. We'd talk about processing. We'd talk about hunting. We'd talk about all the things we're going to make with these different cuts of meat. We'd talk about, of course, the internal organs and stuff. You can't avoid that stuff when you're with kids and what's what. And it was fascinating. And then at the end, I would take a, a back strap out of that javelina, hammer it out with some flour and, and fry it up and make javelina nuggets for the kids. Those are the ones that were allowed to eat them. Um, mm-hmm. And I did that all in the most left-leaning neighborhood in the most left city of Arizona. If I can do it, anybody can do it. And it's right. not propaganda. I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm just being no. honest about what I do and I'm doing it. In a That's what matter. it is. It's showing the honesty. It's showing the truths um, yeah. because what's being weaponized against us is the is not the truth you know right and um going back to like the the photos and stuff like that like listen i i have kill shots i was a tv show host for a long time i had a lot of um you know because that's what's sold you know you you especially during the golden golden days of tv you know outdoor tv like heck there was even contracts where they're like oh we want you to show this we want you to show that like but you got to look at it like you said from somebody else's perspective and i don't want to tell people no you cannot show a grip and grin don't sure don't show but also you also need to show the meals, the camaraderie, you have to show mm-hmm. what went into it. Tell the full story. I spent 15 days afield trying to get this elk. You know, I, 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 I worked out, I practiced my bow. I, you know, I scouted for 20, I did this and I did that. And this is what went into it because so many people think like a tag represents a dead animal, right? And you and I know that. <laughs> I wish, it's I wish very it far that, from yeah. the truth, right? Yeah, you know. So, I mean, if statistically, okay, I was just looking at, you know, across the board, Arizona archery deer is like a 13% success rate. Mm-hmm. So 13% of people fill their tags. Right. You know, just to give those who are listening to this a, an idea of what we're talking about. You know, so... They, just, they don't know that the tag just means it's an opportunity to possibly harvest an animal. Yeah. That's what that, that's what a tag is. It's a legal, uh, you know, contract basically that says, Hey, I, you have the opportunity to shoot. Right. Should it present itself, shoot with this one you know, species. If you don't mind my interjecting, as long as you're saying sure. that, I think it's important to point out that, Predator populations, whether that be bobcats, lions, uh, and bears, uh, are very carefully regulated by wildlife scientists. 
Yep. Um, you kill a bear or you kill a lion. You have, I'm going to mess this up. It's something like 24 hours um, to take the the head, the hide, proof of sex into game and fish. They're going to take a tooth um, so they can determine the age of that animal. And they track these populations very carefully so we do not over harvest them. And that and that's that's the thing that we want people to understand. They, we want them to know that we're doing this through a science-based Mm-hmm. You know, everything that is done is through science based. It should never be an opinion thing. Yeah. We don't want it to be an opinion thing on our side. And we don't want it to be an opinion thing on the opposite side of no. the table. No. We we don't want ballot box initiatives. We don't want to have uh people's emotions deciding what what should and shouldn't be harvested. Right. Um, because that can go both ways. You can have, like you said, those bad eggs in the, in, in our ranks that would just take advantage of that and shoot anything willy nilly that they could. Uh, and then the flip side of that is you'd have those people that wouldn't want anything to be taken. And I think that's a, a very, that anti hunting perspective is actually very anti-wildlife because if you understood how wildlife works Mm -hmm. and the balance of things and how things need to be um, controlled in a way that does the most good like the death of one deer might save a hundred deer yeah I'm going to, I'm going to pause you here, John, because I I feel like there are arguments from the hunting community that I don't necessarily uh, abide by, um, coming from a biological background. Uh, one of those is, well, okay. Uh, Folks, then this is, I'm I'm getting a little bit off track here because I I don't mean to lift up what I was about to say with what I just said. Um, we do need to manage wildlife now. Um, mm-hmm. you know, wildlife didn't need us before. Um, and because of us, it does need us now because we've jacked everything up the face of the planet, exactly. not just Arizona. We have improved habitat in a lot of ways, uh, but ultimately, you know, we've thrown a wrench into the whole game. So the face of the earth doesn't look like it did. Um, everything is fragmented. Um, there are genetic blockages to wildlife populations, whether that be, you know, interstate 40 up here, um, or the, you know, agriculture fields, solar fields, wind farms, we've messed it up. So we need to be working on the ground, um, to manage for wildlife in today's day and age. Um, and that's unfortunate. I mean, it sucks. I really don't like it either, but that's the world we live in, whether you like it or not. And ultimately, well, and I'll say one more, and you you might disagree with me, and that's great because different perspectives are wonderful. But when it comes to predator hunting, so lions, mm-hmm. bears, other cats, a lot of hunters say we have to manage these populations or they'll get out of control. That is not something I abide by, and I need to be very careful here. I'm not speaking for the Arizona Wildlife Federation on this. I'm speaking from my own opinion, you know, based on mm-hmm. my education in, in ecology. Predator populations do a great job of managing themselves. They will raise and lower with prey populations. Does that mean that we shouldn't hunt them because they can manage themselves? No. Folks tend to get really excited about animals that for whatever reason are more charismatic to them. 
So you can show a picture of a, if I, okay, my personal Facebook page has all kinds of wildlife people on there, not just hunters and anglers. If I show a picture of myself holding an elk, Mm-hmm. I am going to get a long list of attaboys, congratulations, what a beautiful animal, good for you, down the line, right? If I show a picture of myself holding a big old lion, which I'd love to do someday, a lot mm-hmm. of people that that I consider close are going to be very upset with me. Yep. Why is that, though? That elk is no less alive than that lion, you know? And as long as they are managed in a scientific manner to sustain those populations, what is the difference in viewing that animal as a resource that can be utilized in a sensible, practical way? There isn't any. <laughs> That's how I see it, John. There <laughs> we, isn't any. We just got to get through yeah. to that to, to other folks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, there are trophic cascade arguments. And in minute cases, we can see that sort of thing. But overall, on a population level, on a landscape level, lions and bears are doing wonderfully. And we have been hunting them for the past hundred years under this model of conservation. I will build on that and say, if we want to keep robust wildlife populations on the landscape, if we want to keep our public lands in, well, (laughs) in the public's hands, if we want to keep access to all of this, we need to keep maintain and keep acting under this this model of conservation we have and we need an army of hunters and anglers on the landscape who have that connection who are willing to stand up for these things so whether you like hunting or not if you enjoy having the outdoors if you enjoy accessible to you if you enjoy having robust wildlife populations on the landscape you should probably support hunters um mm-hmm. you know in, in a real a uh, precise example of this would be like hunting in Africa, which everybody loves to hate, right? I don't even have any desire to go to Africa and kill a lion. I just don't. It just mm-hmm. doesn't speak to me. But if you have a rancher who owns a giant ranch in Africa, right? The cattle he's raising on that ranch is what's valuable to him. Therefore, the lions that are killing those cattle all of a sudden, you know, become a problem for him. They're costing him a lot of money. He has no reason to keep those lions on his private property, and he won't. You'll have you'll have them exterminated. You throw in rich American hunters, guys that I don't even connect with, but you throw those guys in, send them over there, willing to pay a lot of money to go shoot one of those lions. Now that hunt that now that rancher, that landowner, has a lot of initiative to keep lions and lion habitat healthy on his ranch. So you might yep. not like this. This might sound all convoluted to you, and you might even be right. But it is what it is. And there's people all over this planet that only care about what they care about. And this hunting thing, this allows us to continue to have robust wildlife populations. Yep. It does. I was going to say something earlier about the anti-hunting is basically anti-wildlife. So, you know, without getting into biology lesson here, and I'm sure you know about predator pits and... Mm-hmm all this other things that can happen. Um, but from a 30,000 foot view and, and put it in plain English, uh, and you kind of said, you kind of touched on this as well, but you know, the idea, if we left wildlife alone to do its thing, to let predators regulate prey and so on and so forth, 
it's not a reality anymore because it might've worked when there was like a couple of million people on the planet mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or, or even a billion people on the planet, but there's close to 8 billion of us now. And like you said before, our fingerprint is on everything. Everything we touch, everything we do has an effect. You may never even step foot in the woods mm -hmm. and your cell phone that you just bought might have impact on the wild. Mm -hmm. So it's like on us as the intellectual beings of the planet to be the ones that manage everything. Yeah. And conserve that the, the word conservation is conserve. It means to use responsibly and make sure that there's a continued or the the excuse me the ability to continue to use that resource for forever. So that's why there needs to be balance. You know, you talked about, you know, the prey, the prey and the and, and predators. But what happens now, because we have roads everywhere, because there's all this fractured landscape and all this, um, you know, things that we go, we go out into into the wild to extract other resources, wood and mm -hmm. oil and whatever. Yep, a lot of because all that well. goes on. You don't have this tight relationship between the prey and predator that you had before. And everything goes, it's not, you know, slow ups and downs. It's peaks and valleys now, peaks and valleys. And so like if you let everything go, you would have this like violent die off one way and then die off the other way and then this would come back and then that would you know it's like mm -hmm. it would go back and forth it would be this like ping pong match that doesn't you know it's not as pretty as you think it is going to be like yeah. a, a, as a as somebody who wants to be a preservationist or somebody who wants to be hands off um and then the flip side of it is like because we're touching everything because we're extracting things from our resources other than the animals themselves the funding's not going to be there mm -hmm. the the mechanism that we have in place to like regulate and keep things and keep access and keep you know th those things were not you know will not be there um it's it's like cutting off your nose to spite your face so i think like if the anti-hunters were to succeed in their mission and completely abolish, you know, any hunting or any uh, anything that uh, affects the welfare of animals, really, mm -hmm. you know, cattle ranching, all that stuff is in their crosshairs. Mm -hmm. You know, try to think about what the landscape would be. Try to think about what the world would be um, from economic standpoint from the resources standpoint from like if they were sick if they had a magic wand and they waved their wand right now and there were nobody ate cattle and nobody you know ate chicken and yeah. uh there was no more hunting and we didn't test cosmetics on animals and you know all these things were to go away think about what that would leave you 
And I think that's what people have to, because that's what their goal is. I'm not saying that that it's possible for them to get there. I mean, I guess it could be, you know, if everybody just laid down, it would probably happen. It could happen, I guess. To put that a little more precisely, um, you know, I think the vast majority of human beings, uh, including the sporting community, have finally at least gotten on board that our climate is changing. Be that mm-hmm. what it is, however it started, our climate's changing. We live in the Southwest. Okay. We've already developed lots of the areas that were once wet. We've mm-hmm. sucked up all the groundwater that has a direct connection to surface water. I've heard um, some groups complain about having tanks or for people back east ponds on the landscape because we're artificially inflating wildlife populations. And of course, the argument is we're doing that because we want more animals to kill. Mm-hmm. Fact is, climate is changing. The Southwest was already dry. It's getting drier. We've already developed those areas that were once wet. Okay. We have had a detrimental effect outside of hunting on wildlife in the Southwest. If we want to keep wildlife in the Southwest, you know, and and I'm not promoting overgrazing. I, you know, I'm a cows, not condos kind of guy, but I also, I don't like cows tearing up the landscape. But if it wasn't for cattlemen and hunters putting water on the landscape, we would not have what we have today. And it's sad. It's unfortunate. That's a place that we live in, but it's not because of hunting. It's because of the same people that don't like mm-hmm. hunting who are building their houses here and making their living here and watering 100%. their lawns here. So just to put a little more precise point on, on what you were saying, you know, no, that's a, that's perfect way to put it. You know, you, you, people would like to think that their hands are clean. Like even like, you know, I want to take it to a, a different level, but like, you know, it's the vegan that I'm okay with, you want to be a vegan because you feel like that's the healthiest choice for you. Sure. Go for it. Be a vegan. Yeah. But if you're doing it because you think that you're making the world a better place. No, no, you're not, you know, like you, you could look at that a million. I've heard it said, said before you want to kill the most things, you know, be a vegan, you know, like those tons of little animals that die or whatever. But you also look at it from a different perspective. Like it takes what thirty-three gallons to make one av- of water to make one avocado, mm-hmm. three gallons of water to make one almond. Yeah, you yeah. know, like you think about it. Like there's nothing that humans do on any level that doesn't have an impact on the wild on the wild. You know that on the on the wild world. You know, <laughs> so it's like you have to have the mindset of conservation. What are the things that I could do? What is the best balance Mm -hmm. that I can do to make this, you know, last as long as possible? Right. And maybe forever, you know, I don't even know if if forever is even a thing. Cause if you think, (laughs) you think about the way the world is, I mean, eventually the sun's going to go. We probably won't have a world, but, (laughs) but, you know, so I, I just, it's just having that mindset, having the holistic view of what things should be and and not be like, oh, this is the best. This is this is the only and the and not look at everything else. Yeah. 
uh, what, what, what can come from your, you yeah, know. you, you got to be open-minded to what's really in front of you. Um, and you know, another, I think big difference between, you know, animal rights advocates, uh, who, who advocate against hunting, um, and the hunting community is we, we are looking at animal populations. Um, they're looking at animal individuals in a lot of instances. Mm-hmm. Um, they see that dead deer, it hurts their heart. They don't want that. They feel sorry for that deer. Um, but I can tell you, hunters in the sporting community, they want robust, healthy populations of wildlife. Now, granted, there could be some arguments in there about wolves and stuff. There there are a lot of those fellows that don't want, don't want all those wolves on the landscape. Uh, I, for one, I like hunting in, in fully intact ecosystems, and, and I welcome you know all, all elements of predator and prey components of an ecosystem, and, and a lot of hunters do. But, uh, but yeah, getting away from that, that myopic view of, of just that individual animal, uh, is, is important, I think. And, you know, this whole education piece that we are, you know, what we're talking about here, we've talked about how hunters can police themselves to paint a better picture of what it is that we do. Um, and we've talked about, uh, education and, and talking to people, like you put it hugely important, um, but man, what scares me is like, it's not going to be enough. You know, you work through how to educate people. And I think that's awesome. I work through AWF to educate people. And I think that's awesome. But it's like, one, how do we reach more people? Mm-hmm. And how do we reach people outside of our echo chambers? Um, that, that's what I'm, I've been thinking about. And I don't have the answer yet. Um, but it, but it's a, a question that I need to get an answer to. Um, there needs to be some funding poured into this. That mm-hmm. has been attempted before. But it was an attempted in a way that privatized some tags. Um, so the sporting community pushed back on it because basically you're, you're yes, you're advocating for hunting, but you're also going against the, the foundation of our North American model. And that's wildlife being a public trust and not being privatized. Mm-hmm. But there, there's got to be other ways to get some funding for this kind of education. And of course, it has to be done truthfully, but also carefully, you know. Um, and you know, I guess that's, that's up to groups like ours to get that figured out. But I would, I would urge folks that even if you're not a hunter, if you care about wildlife, consider, consider donating or joining up, you know, donate to how donate to the Arizona wildlife federation, or you pick your group. Um, you know, I'll say Arizona sportsman for wildlife conservation and their, uh, their kind of offshoot Southwest wildlife foundation. They, they played a large role as well as a lot of sporting orgs did in pushing back on the last cat hunting ban attempt. And I will say not only that, I think the president of uh, Humane Society got into a lot of trouble um, in, in the midst of that. And mm. uh, yeah, there's, there's sexual abuse allegations, things like that. And that campaign kind of campaign kind of <laughs> fell apart. But um, there's a lot of ways uh, that we can we can work to better our situation, better our view in the public's eye and, and try to get ahead of these these bans before they get here. Because again, boy, the repercussions of ballot box biology are are dangerous, um, and and they can go as far as your imagination will allow. Um, it is a true and real slippery slope. Um, that oh, I would yeah. be very careful. I don't want to. I don't want to live in a world where native species are nobody. Nobody cares about them anymore, and and you know there's feral dogs and feral cats running everywhere, and, and yeah, yeah. I, I want to live in a, in a place where we manage our wild places. Uh, for as close to their native state as we can. Um, and we have these places that we have access access to that we can go out and, and enjoy, you know, these wildlife resources, whether we want to bring a couple of them home or just enjoy them being there on the landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
yeah, I want to, as long as I live, I want to see this continue and I want it to continue Same. for my children and their children. Same. I don't know if I want to beat a dead horse here, but I know we know we talked about a lot of things and some of the things that we can do, um, you know, as individuals, people who are listening in on this mm-hmm. podcast. Um, I'm trying to, what, what would you think just as the average, average person listening in that what, are, what, what is, what is another way, you know, yes, get involved in, you know, the, the organizations mm-hmm. get donate, uh, having those conversations, was there or policing yourselves? Is there any anything else specific that you think that we can do as as sportsmen and as outdoorsmen to? Yeah, there is one idea I've heard tossed around. Now, granted, I'm in my work. I am just getting in to this work. I'm educating myself. I'm researching. One other option is to make it harder to do a ballot initiative. It's already expensive. I think it starts like a million bucks or something. Mm-hmm. But these groups, they have that money and they have a lot more, yeah. but oh, yeah. to make it harder to do. But then again, I, I don't want to shout that at the top of my lungs because I have not looked at the repercussions of that in other parts of our life and, and legislation and, and just our, our system, you know, but that, but that is one option. You don't want to, it's like, you don't want to hobble yourself, um, you know, cause you always have to look at the grand picture We're we're uh-huh. looking at something right now specific that it's hunting and fishing and wildlife related. Yep. But something like that could affect, I don't know, something, a housing thing down the line, yep. you know, or. Right. So you gotta be careful. Some other, sure. Yeah. It's definitely something you need to be careful. Of. I think uh, from the hunting and fishing standpoint, two things that would be, now, this is not something that an individual can do specifically, mm-hmm. um, but should these things arise, please jump on it, is if there is a right to hunt and fish uh, ballot initiative put in place in places that don't have it, because there are states, I think 23 states that have it, yeah. or it might be 20, something yeah. like that, that have it, that makes things uh, a little bit better for the outdoorsmen. Right. It doesn't 100% give you, you know, 100% uh, peace of mind, but it, it does help. And then there is, I also see Arizona actually specifically does a pretty good job of this. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll add that even our lot. governor, Katie Hobbs, uh, uh, wrote a proclamation um, to uplift hunting and angling earlier this or last year. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah, what I was thinking about is the commissions. Yeah. So a lot of the commissions are getting infiltrated across the United States. You're seeing right. it in Washington, you're seeing it in Colorado, you're seeing mm-hmm. it in New Mexico. You're because they're appointed by the governor, and the governor is whether they feel this way yeah. personally or not. Yeah, um, they're you know they're definitely politically driven, and there's people tugging on those strings right. one way or the other. And yeah. people are getting appointed that are not wildlife, definitely not hunting and fishing, um, you know, pro hunting and fishing. But some of them are not even qualified to look at things from a perspective of wildlife right. in general. And I think that if you're going to be on a 
Game and Fish Commission, like that is an entity that is put in place to govern and regulate hunting and fishing that you should be a angler or hunter and have a certain vested now i'm not saying we have to put <laughs> i can hear all know, the arguments in my head already i don't disagree with you but i can, I can hear all yeah. the arguments oh yeah you can hear all the arguments but the the problem with the problem with the that that commission is put in place for hunting and like a hunting and fishing regulatory thing like you cannot have somebody oh you oh but we need to represent the whole population but the whole population is not hunting and fishing right so why should they have a have a a voice on what laws are made for hunting and fishing like that to me like you should have Oh, you may not even, maybe, okay, maybe being a hunting hunter or an angler is asking too much, but you should at least be a wildlife biologist or at least be, right. have some kind of understanding of the natural world. Right. I, I don't I think it's preposterous that I could be the governor of the state and I can elect my cousin Joe, you know, to be on the, right. in this position. I can appoint my my cousin Joe to be appointed in this position and he could do whatever the heck I want him to do. Right. And if, you know, their anti-hunting orgs are putting money in my back pocket, I could tell Joe to say, you know, I want, you know, this, 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 this. like Mm -hmm. there needs to be, listen, there's a lot of problems going on with our government, but this is something that we can, I think we can fix fairly simply. Yeah. You know, just having a, a, a certain rubric or a, a standardized um, from state to state, like you, this has to happen, this has to happen. I, forgive me if I'm wrong. I think in Arizona, you have to have had your hunting and fishing license for at least five years before you could be a, a commissioner. And I think, and I'm not 100%, you might know this, but yeah, hopefully you know this better than I do. Um, I know it, it's, I think it's called CARB or something yeah, like that. Yeah, like we have an organization. Board. Yes. So they can't just pick cousin Joe in yeah. the state of Arizona. I know the commission, the, that recommendation board says, okay, here's the five people that you get to choose from. Right. Choose one of these. Yep. Um, so it's a little bit better here. Yeah. That's just a lot better here. But there's states like Colorado, New Mexico, where I literally can, I can, you know, yeah. to use nepotization. Yeah. And- we, we've been pretty fortunate in Arizona with our, we have a fantastic Arizona game and fish department. Uh, we do. Thus far, you know, we've had, um, the commission at least in, in my time of working in conservation in Arizona, we've had governors that understand this model um, and, and are upholding it. It doesn't mean they might not want to make some changes, but they get it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there is that, that, that commission uh, appointment recommendation board, the CARB, who makes those recommendations to the governor and then the governor picks. But yeah, one bad governor can, can throw a wrench into the whole thing. Uh, there are, you know, I don't know if we call them laws. Um, there are rules that govern who can be on that carb. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, for to the, at the commission level, surprisingly, I, I don't uh, know what rules apply there. Uh, but I, I, but I am more familiar with the card process and, and who, who can be on that card. But, uh, so yeah, we got a pretty good system here. It doesn't mean it's flawless and perfect, but no, it's not know, the, but... the tough question is 
hunters have made the investment. Hunters, you know, both physically and financially. Um, you know, h- hunters are, I would argue, largely the most, again, and, and I know there's other individuals, but largely the most involved in wildlife conservation. Um, but the, the, ba- the hard question is, and those arguments I'm hearing, it's like, do, do we own wildlife? No, we don't. Wildlife belongs mm. to the public. Um, and that, that's where waters get muddy. And that, that's where we need a public that understands the system and why it's good for wildlife. Oh, John. Um, I don't know. We're an hour and 10 minutes. Um, I I feel like we could, we could go on and on. Yeah. Um, We could say the same things over and over again. (laughs) I I will say, uh, to wrap things up, uh, Arizona Wildlife Federation is, is looking at, uh, putting together, uh, a a coalition of groups, both sporting and non-sporting, uh, that can, can look at these issues and, and try to brainstorm, uh, ways, more tangible ways. I mean, we've talked a lot about philosophy and ideas here, John, but uh, to brainstorm ways that we can actually get this this information out there and get folks educated. Uh, and I, I look forward to working on that. But yeah, a lot of this stuff is 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 kind of kind of new, you know, throughout most of time. And I will say largely the public supports hunting, you know, when carried out in an ethical manner and those animals are consumed. Um so, you know, we got that on our side. Uh, we just, we need to, uh, we need to combat this, this misinformation, these images of, of kitten jaguars and things like that, that are feeding people the wrong narrative on, on what this is that we do and what this is that we want to keep around. And uh, yeah, I'll just say one more time that if you enjoy wildlife on the landscape, if you enjoy wild natural areas, um, you, you better pay attention. You, you better, you better get on the side of hunters, because uh, that's why we have this stuff. And if we're going to keep it in the future, that, that's how we're going to keep it. Well said. Thanks for having me on your podcast, and thanks for uh, yeah, thanks for having me on your yeah. podcast. <laughs> maybe thanks we can uh, get back together, uh, touch bases on this again in the future. Uh, maybe yeah. get get a guest on who has some some real on the ground sure. policy experience with with these battles. Yeah. I would love you to speak to uh, Dan Gates. Okay. On the on, uh, specifically about Colorado, and I know you, you know you're talking about things in Arizona mm-hmm. uh, specific, but for one, the guys a wealth of knowledge, but two, to an understanding of what they have done. When I say they, I mean anti hunting mm-hmm. industry has done in Colorado to get to where they are today, and how that might trickle back to here. Yeah, I'd love to send me his contact info, please. Yeah, we'll do. All right, John, we'll keep doing the good work you're doing. I would encourage folks to get out there and support HAL, uh, support Arizona Wildlife Federation. Just support any any conservation group that you you tend to gravitate towards or you feel attraction to. Uh, but yeah, you know, people are busy. Um, you know, they have families, they have they have jobs, and uh, you know, they don't get to work on this stuff. <laughs> you you have a real job too. I get to work on this stuff yeah. and get paid for it. But uh not everybody, you know, has that luxury and uh, it's hard, but yeah, at least get out there and, and support whatever conservation group that you're interested in and listen, pay attention, talk to people, portray yourself in a, in a positive way and try to get this message out there before, uh, before they do. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, John. Take care, buddy. All right. Well, I hope if you are a hunter and, uh, you, you already understand these concepts. 
I, I hope that this show at least provided you with some talking points or maybe some advice on, on how to, uh, you know, how, how to keep keep this thing alive and how to keep wildlife management in the in the scientific community within the commission. And if you know you, you're not a fan of hunting predators, I hope you at least I hope this at least gave you some insight into the bigger picture of how this whole thing works and why it's important to keep it intact. So with that, I want to thank you once again for listening. And please don't forget that this show is made possible by the Arizona Wildlife Federation. Arizona Wildlife Federation is 100 years old this year, making us the oldest conservation organization in the state. We are out there advocating for your public lands, your access to those public lands, uh, wildlife, healthy wildlife populations, healthy wildlife habitat. We also get out there and do boots on the ground work. We're out there removing fences and improving habitats. We are, we have a variety of education programs trying to reach younger people, minorities, groups that don't otherwise have the opportunity to get out that you and I might have had. Um, you know, a, a lot of us grow up, uh, for, for me, it was simply a matter of growing up in a different time on the edge of town and having access to the outdoors. Uh, others don't don't necessarily have that. Others, you know, they grow up in the inner city. They don't have families that, that recreate in the outdoors. And, and, you know, they grow up without some of the things that, that we might have. So we want to provide those opportunities to all people because wildlife and wild places belong to us all. And we all deserve an opportunity to get out there and enjoy them. And of course, the more people out there enjoying them, the more people are going to be willing to work to protect them. So. Don't forget to reach out to me at podcast at azwildlife.org. I would be happy to take your show suggestions, your critiques, your critiques, your criticisms. Um, and I'd just love to hear from you. So don't ever hesitate to reach out. And we will see you again in two weeks. Thanks again.